Good afternoon from Singapore and welcome to Gulf Intelligence's Daily Energy Markets webinar. I'm Vandana Hari, founder and CEO of Vanda Insights uh, based in Singapore. A couple of major developments uh, that influenced uh, oil market sentiment last week. Of course, we had uh, the Fed meeting and subsequent to that, uh, the signals, the of course, Powell's uh, remarks and the signals that the market absorbed from the Fed officials in terms of what the monetary policy trajectory was likely to look like. And, you know, that was quite a, a dampening effect on the, uh, at least the stock markets. And then we had uh, the Russia oil exports ban, of course, which came as a, as a bit of a shock to the markets. Uh, we had uh, prices in rally mode again uh, through intraday trading on Friday, but they retreated. Uh, where are we now? Brent trading around $92.36, uh, WTI around $90.45. What are the influences uh, one should expect or be ready for in oil markets this week and, and going into the fourth quarter of this year. To discuss this, I'm joined by um, my guests today, Omar Najia, Global Head Derivatives at BB Energy, Vibhuti Garg, Director, South Asia at Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, and Omar Al-Obadli, Director of Research, Bahrain Center for Strategic, International, and Energy Studies. So we have two Omars today. I'll, I'll say Omar Najia for, for Omar, <laughs> and only Omar for uh, Mr. Ubaidli, uh, just because it's easier for me to say Najia. Um, okay, Omar Najia, let's start with you. Um, crude appeared poised to hit the century mark more than a few times uh, over the past fortnight. But uh, each time so far, it has retreated. What's your outlook in terms of uh, prices and the key influences on oil going into the fourth quarter of this year? Um, so I think oil is going to go higher. Um, I think basically, you know, from what I see, it made like, uh, if you want uh, Brent, it made a straight line from about 72 back in end of June and went straight up to 96. So I don't think it's uh, ready yet for 100. I don't even think 100 is that one of a significant number. Uh, but I think uh, eventually we're gonna go substantially higher. And I think basically the background is uh, geopolitical. So it's, 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 it's amazing that the Russians basically can cut production and everybody's, you know, like surprised. So, you know, they had sanctions apply, you know, you know, you, you want to sanction them, I don't know what. And then when they do something, it's like, oh my God, you know, so I think, um, I think more of the same. I think nobody now is talking about the oil price cap, the one that was supposed to, you know, make the markets fall and, and whatever they were supposed to do. So nobody cares. Uh, markets considerably higher. You have, you know, so, so I think basically it's all uh, geopolitical. I think the fact that BRICS admitted UAE, KSA, and Iran means that, you know, there's been a loss of control uh, of oil prices. They tried to do everything with the SBR. They're trying now to say all the news is saying like, no, the Russians, they can't do this because it can only last a week or two weeks because they have no storage. They said the same when it was supposedly cutting uh, oil that they couldn't cut crude because 
there is no storage and all this kind of stuff. So I think you, you don't have to take... buy that then, Omar. Sorry, you. No, uh, not at all. That seemed no. to be the consensus view in the market that Russia no, can the cons- impose this yeah. for too long. Oh. Oh, I remember that, you know, when oil was trading at 67 basis WTI, the consensus was that we would fall and we've gone the other way. So, yes, well, I have no doubt that it's the consensus. Specifically on this diesel ban, are you saying you do not go, you are not in that camp uh, saying that yes. they can't have, okay. Yes. How long do you think I, it can go on? Months. Um, I think basically that they're doing it on purpose. They are doing what we call turning the screws. They want Mm. a change in government in the US. OPEC will continue to cut production. The Russians will continue to do whatever it takes to keep prices high. Why? Because the other side has massive debts. You keep inflation high, you keep forcing them. If you notice the last couple of weeks, you had all the, you know, Fed, BOE, whatever, all of them trying to hold interest rates, right? Why? Inflation has increased, right? But yet they're all saying, no, no, we're going to hold, we're going to hold, we're going to hold. Because they ca- if they increase interest rates anymore, the U.S. is already paying the same, about a trillion dollars a year for on debt payment than it is in, in defense. So the, the, the other side is going to continue on this increased prices, increased inflation, force uh, you know, the Fed or whoever it is basically to increase interest rates. So yes, I think it's strategic. And I think... When you talk about countries and their needs and desires, it supersedes everything else. Just exactly like they said, you know, we won't abide by the by the price cap. We'll just we, you know, they did that. We said they're going to cut production. They did that, and at every step, if you notice, everybody was saying they can't cut production. There is no discipline. There is no storage. The oil price cap is going to work. Everything literally has been proven completely wrong. So. Definitely that's not true. consensus. That, that's true. Yeah, I- interesting. Um, the arguments that I read in, in supporting that view was that uh, sooner or later they will set plug the shortages in the domestic market, the diesel market, um, and which means they will have to resume exporting. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, let me go to Vibhuti. Um, I think the almost two parallel strains of debate and discussions in the energy markets, I mean, on the oil markets as well. Um, One is, of course, where are prices headed next? And in parallel, as we get closer to COP28, uh, 10 weeks away, of course, is this whole, and and we saw that with the UN General Assembly uh, last week as well, um, a sort of a rising tide of sentiment against the fossil fuel companies and and the markets to the extent that Somebody like John Kerry, for instance, the U.S. Um, environmental envoy, saying that oil and gas companies should just completely be left out of these discussions. Um, but let's let's bring um, this discussion back to India and uh, the G20. And you know, one of the the, the major uh, announcements coming out of the G20 summit uh, in uh, India was the Global Biofuel Alliance, and um, something that India has been advocating and, and championing for a while. Uh, can you shed some light for us on how? you see this alliance operating. And uh, also related to that, uh, some concerns being expressed around India's own bioethanol plans because they rely quite heavily on the sugarcane sector. 
That's right. So India successfully launched the Biofuel Alliance along with Brazil, US, and there were other 19 signatories to that alliance. 19 countries had signed up for it. But you are very right. I mean, while our objective is to reduce our reliance on imports of oil, and given the price volatility, I think uh, it's a good stand from energy's, energy security perspective that you are trying to come up with alternatives. But mm -hmm. at the same time, uh, you know, pushing a lot of biofuel can be counterproductive in the sense that while we have already achieved around 10% of ethanol blending with petrol, and that is really helping India in terms of reducing pollution uh, because of the transport sector and also reducing our reliance on imports. But on the other hand, what we are also witnessing that increasingly India wants to push an increasing share of uh, uh, ethanol blending. But that means if you are going to use sugarcane as well as maize, uh, one of our studies at IFA by my colleague Charles Foringham uh, very rightly kind of calculated that, you know, the same land, the distance, if, for example, the uh, you need one hectare of land for the same distance you travel for EV charging infrastructure, but you need about 250 hectares of land for sugarcane production if the same distance has to travel, 150 hectares of land for maize mm. production for traveling the same distance. So is it the right choice? Why not just mm. leapfrog and promote more electric vehicles? Uh, as I said, while the intent is right to reduce uh, pollution and do more, uh, use more biofuels, but maybe it can also come at a cost of food security, these crops are very water intensive. So uh, given yeah. the culture of monsoons in India, that means more and more irrigation. That means more use of electricity, which might be fueled by carbon intensive uh, technology. So I think, yeah, you, one really needs to have a careful thought. Uh, and uh, while using crop residue or uh, waste can be a good choice of fuel, but definitely uh, it may not be the best way of addressing climate change or, or decarbonizing the EV sector or uh, the transport sector, yes. Yeah, I, I think we are all concluding that there are no easy solutions and um, there's a downside to almost any route that we take uh, to find alternatives for uh, for fossil fuels, especially. Thanks for that, Vibhuti. Um, Omar, uh, the Saudi energy minister, uh, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, put up quite a full-throated defense of OPEC plus cuts and the additional Saudi cuts, uh, speaking at the World Petroleum Congress uh, in Calgary last week. Now, of course, we all know that the kingdom regularly distances itself from the concept of having price targets. Um, but nonetheless, in recent weeks, especially with uh, crude approaching the $100 mark, there has been speculation in the market that what, if anything, would prompt Saudi Arabia to start easing at least the incremental cut. Do you think that 100 is that magic figure? Um, so good question. So first of all, just in terms of background, uh, this is exactly what the buffer that the Saudi Arabia has been you know, building for the last year or so is has been is for uh, it's for situations where we've got the price rising seemingly uncontrollably or and 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 it may put the world economy or certain economies in a, in a difficult position 
Uh, and Saudi Arabia will, is well-placed now to relieve the pressure and to lower prices in exchange for, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whatever interests it seeks, uh, uh, it seeks on behalf of itself and, and the wider OPEC plus group. Um, <clears throat> now, what would trigger that? I don't think it's a, you know, as, as you mentioned, I don't think it's like a specific number. I think it's more related to the sort of, uh, you know, geopolitical pressure and the, and, and the requests that will be sent to Saudi Arabia. Now, going back to what Amar was saying earlier, uh, you know, one of the variable factors there is things like interest rates and, and the, you know, and the position of central banks uh, as uh, they tighten and as the, uh, you know, leading economies in the world find themselves teetering on the edge of recession or at least flirting with the recession more and more, then the more they will be, you know, willing to, looking to apply pressure on the Saudi Arabia or at least present requests for Saudi Arabia to, you know, to relax. Whereas if, you know, at the moment for the time being, the US economy looks like it's going well, despite all the, uh, you know, all the interest rate increases. Uh, and actually, the main problem uh, that it might be facing is another government shutdown, <laughs> rather than uh, anything yeah. as the result of uh, uh, oil prices being elevated. Uh, so, uh, so I think those will be really the, the factors. But I don't think there's a specific number, and it's not like there's a you know computational system. Oh, it's gonna rub here. Now we'll act. It's very much ad hoc. Let's listen to see what what the pressures that are emerging are. Let's see what mm. our interests are. But now Saudi Arabia at least has you know, with some patience, giving itself the opportunity to be uh, a, a strong uh, uh, and active member of the uh, uh, global economy. So just following on from uh, your point, there has been no pressure, virtually no, shall we say, no pressure whatsoever so far, certainly not from the US. We haven't seen anything from um, the IEA or the European countries or uh, even India for that matter. Uh, do you think that is what um, will be the trigger? Saudi Arabia needs to hear um, some protests or requests to put more oil back into the market? Well, first of all, remember that it's what happens uh, publicly isn't necessarily what happens behind the scenes. And yeah. at the moment, it's not fashionable to uh, request things from Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if there is some, you know, discreet meeting and Saudi Arabia is discreet. So if, if it is reached out to in a discreet manner by, you know, by its partners and other countries, it will respond discreetly. It won't, you know, won't, uh, seek to make that public. However, uh, uh, regardless of any requests incoming or not, OPEC has its own calculations. OPEC realizes it doesn't want to, the goal is price stability, price stability for the benefit of both sides of the market. Um, uh, and so even if nobody comes to complain, their goal is not to jack the price up as high as possible. If they think that the price is reaching to a level where it will start, you know, having causing demand destruction or it will cause distress, uh, they will they will intervene unilaterally as a, as a block. Uh, and, you know, they also realize that there exists a political cycle. Uh, and that there uh, and there's quite a lot of myopia in uh, in in terms of these requests being put forward to OPEC plus. Whereas I think OPEC plus has demonstrated quite clearly that since 2016, it's uh, far more long sighted than most of the geopolitical actors uh, in in oil markets. So I think they they're monitoring. It's it will probably be a mostly a technocratic decision, uh, mm -hmm. and I don't see that you know changing anytime soon. Yeah, uh, Omar Nadia, if 
Saudi Arabia is leaning in, in favor of uh, or considering uh, putting some more oil back into the market. I suppose one of um, the market groups that would absolutely want to be ahead of the curve is the, the hedge funds and the speculators. And uh, one of the discussions in the markets over, the, over this year has been how the, the hedge funds were quite sidelined initially, and then they have been quite rapidly building up length um, just based on the CFTC data, I see that has happened quite prominently since around the starting of July. Um, do you see much more room for speculative length uh, to continue driving crude prices higher? In a word, yes. So I don't see that the Saudis have been under no pressure. I think they've been under tremendous pressure. They released the SPR, Biden went to Saudi Arabia, but the diff and and when they had all these uh, meetings, OPEC, OPEC plus, they were threatened by the U.S. administration, right? As as in a diplomatic way, not you know we're going to shoot you and all this kind of stuff. But they were. What's different is there's been no response to pressure. That's the first thing. The second thing is that in terms of um, in terms of what's different, I mean, I, I like to think most people are, you know, all people are intelligent, you know, and, and extremely so, not, not like imbeciles. So if you tell the Saudis and OPEC that in 10 years, we're not going to need you anymore, but by the way, let's keep prices low and we're going to do this green stuff and then we're going to decimate you and your industry and all the rest of it. I mean, I don't understand. Honestly, I think some it's like delusional. So let me repeat again. It is in OPEC's interest to push the price so far, so very far, as to make everyone scream. It's why can you why can Apple come and say, you know, we have an iPhone 15, which has nothing new except basically, I don't know, maybe they put an avocado inside or something. So, and they can charge whatever it is. But if, if OPEC want oil prices higher, it's like, no, 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 no. We can't do that. Obviously there are pressures. No, there is no pressure. That's why you've seen monumental changes in the market. You've seen Saudi, UAE, Iran join the BRICS, 80% of oil production, which means no more US sanctions. US dollar, petrodollar is it on its last legs. You're seeing the world change before your eyes. And I think the same applies to oil prices, commodity prices, all that kind of stuff. But if we want to live and kind of keep saying that, <laughs> no, what's good for supply, what's good for producers and consumers and all this kind of stuff, that's fine. In my view, you don't tell somebody that they're going to be useless in 10 years and expect them to behave the way you want them. Um, you know, on, that's it. on that point, Omar, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, but if in response, OPEC plus ends up tightening the markets and driving the, the prices high, uh, whether it produces the desired response as to, you know, the, the world says, oh, yeah, okay, you know, this is not good for us. We need oil and gas for many years. Or it produces exactly the opposite response. I think no, uh, that... But forgive me, this, this is the response that's already there. The response is, if prices go too high, we're going to find alternatives. You've already told them that you're going to find alternatives. So what do you yeah. expect? 
they're going to yeah. drive prices so high and, and demand for, for, for energy is inelastic. Whether you heat your home or drive your car, it's inelastic. You've Absolutely. already said we're going to replace you. It's not like if the price gets to 100, we're going to replace you. So replace us. And, but, and that's a good segue to, to um, Vibhuti's uh, area of expertise as well. So exactly as Vibhuti, you've said, and, and Omar, to your point, it's, um, it's not easy to replace that, that oil and gas. And somehow that lesson is being driven home in a, in a very difficult manner to the world. And related to that, Vibhuti, my question for you is that um, finance, sustainable finance. So G20 has set up a sustainable finance working group. Uh, but this is an area that you have talked about and, and you look at quite closely. What are some of the main hurdles that, you, that you're still seeing in, in sustainable finance? Right. Um, if you can allow me, I can just want to quickly respond on some of the comments uh, made by Omar yes. earlier. Uh, so, well, while we, the idea is to find alternatives, so having higher oil prices uh, would really push for the replacement of alternatives sooner. The time period which we were envisaging, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the shift would happen 10 years down the line. So if we are gonna maintain higher prices, the shift might happen sooner. One of the example is recently at the G20 as well, we signed a, a tripatriot agreement with building corridors between India, Middle East, Europe, and that's for transferring of green power. So I think once that, those kind of initiative gets further strengthened. So definitely alternatives are going to be built, but it's going to take time. But that also means you are really pushing for debt trap for smaller countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, who have been hugely reliant. And it's the same countries, Middle East, who are or uh, IMF, who are bailing these countries out. So mm. I don't know where to get the right balance. So while on one hand, having higher oil prices, uh, uh, maybe the norm, but that means for smaller developing countries, you are putting such a big push on their economy uh, and, you know, further they falling into debt trap just because they don't have the financial resources to buy, irrespective of demand being inelastic. So there is a cost attached to them. Now, coming to your point on uh, this group uh, being uh, kind of formulated as sustainable finance working group as part of the G20. Uh, so a lot of important steps have been taken. So they have recognized uh, the use of blended finance, which can really uh, help in bringing the cost of capital down, especially for emerging economies. And that will unlock a lot of private capital. There is a lot of discussion on restructuring of MDBs as well uh, and a more detailed outline of how it's going to be done will be coming up in next month. So I think that's where uh, MDB restructuring has become one of the center piece of reforms as far as, far as the financing working group mandate is concerned. But there are a lot of other things. India wants to promote energy efficiency as part of Mission Life. So there are a lot of initiatives being taken, uh, but the amount of capital required is huge. So public capital or blended finance or concessional capital alone will not solve uh, the financing needs. So there is a lot of role that private capital have to play and how do we catalyze and unlock more private capital is yet to be seen. 
Okay, thanks, thanks, Vibhuti. Uh, let's go to our survey question uh, before I go back to Omar. So uh, we have a report overnight, quite an interesting one, and it's included in our reading digest today as well. Uh, the Financial Times is reporting that nearly three quarters of Russian oil is now going on non-Western ships, um, which is uh, a, a, a much bigger fraction compared with about half uh, is what we were seeing in the months prior. So um, my question is quite um, short and simple today. Uh, the G7 price cap on Russian oil has A, died a natural death or will remain in play. Um, we've deliberately kept the uh, the second option uh, short. Uh, will remain in play can mean anything. Of course, it, uh, I highly doubt that anybody will actually retract it uh, or or end it formally. But for um, but so it'll it'll remain in the background. Or uh, perhaps uh, the EU, US and EU at some point will want to revisit. Uh, whether they want to uh, tweak that. So in, in that sense, will it remain in play or is it like basically it's it's there, but it's practically dead. So have your say on that. Um, Omar, I was uh, looking at your uh, thought-provoking piece, uh, which you posted on Substack entitled, Why the Gulf Countries Like to Copy One Another's Projects. And uh, I'd encourage our, our viewers to, to go take a look as well. I, I certainly found it a very interesting and thought-provoking read. Um, how do you see this? You call it this the policy mimicry. I found that a very interesting phrase as well. How do you see this playing out in the energy sector? And, and do you see any downsides to this uh, trend? Well, we see it very much so in the energy sector um, with you know renewable energies. Now, part, I mean, I have to say, it, it, it is almost inevitable in the energy sector, given the first of all, you know, um, abundance of hydrocarbons, and then certainly the the uh, environmental constraints mean that there aren't as many environment uh, renewable options as there are, you know, if you were living in Germany or uh, or, or China. Uh, but what you do see is this idea of first of all, um, you know, joint part jo uh, joint ventures with uh, you know with leading you know uh, energy companies from around the world. This idea of consolidating uh, energy portfolios under some umbrella of some big conglomerate's umbrella. Uh, this idea of um, uh, continually, unfortunately, outsourcing uh, the research and development. Um, I mean, sometimes it's it looks superficially or nominally to be in-house but actually when you look at the universities and when you look at the, the, the scientists performing the new renewable energy research are very often foreigners um, uh, who are not you know permanent residents or citizens of the of the Gulf countries uh, and then obviously you know in the context of fossil fuels they're, they're all um, uh, you know when one of them um, uh, I guess somewhat inevitably when you hear that Saudi Arabia is drilling you see that Bahrain is drilling UAE is drilling and so on and obviously Kuwait and Saudi Arabia have various shared interests on that front so I mean if I were to uh, uh, demonstrate the policy mimicry then I wouldn't look at the energy sector because I think although it exists heavily in the energy sector it is harder to, uh, it is much easier to explain that just by the virtue of the, you know, structural homogeneity there is in that sector in of itself. But I do think that, you know, um, uh, they, they, they uh, in, all, in all these circles, including energy, 
they could do with a little bit of inspiration, shall we say, a little bit of creative inspiration and a little bit, of, a little bit more brainstorming, a little bit less, uh, less looking over the neighbor's fence. <laughs> okay, interesting. Thank, thanks for that. Um, do we have the survey results, Medlin? Um, okay, I had expected to see a, a much higher number on the, on the top one, but okay, so it's about 70-30. Uh, not, not an insignificant part of our viewers, uh, ratio of our viewers think that it will some, one, one way or another remain in play. Okay, um, we have about uh, maybe one minute, and um, um, I'll give that to you, Omar Najia, for um, just to follow up on one of the... Um, points you mentioned earlier, you said when I asked you about your outlook for prices, you said, yes, uh, much higher. And eventually, those are the, the, the words you used, if I recollect. So um, if I were to put you on the spot, um, do you, when you say much higher, how much higher than 100 do you expect crude? And when you say eventually, what time frame do you have in mind? Uh, in 60 seconds. So between now and first quarter, I think, uh... 110, even 120. I think this market, when I started saying market's going to the upside at $67, was basically, you know, people were very, very pessimistic. No way we're going lower. Those are the facts, quote unquote. Now, basically, people are skeptical, right? So no, no, it's, it's done a lot. That's it, blah, blah, blah. So next, we'll get the optimist phase. And then, then we get the euphoria and then we come down. So now, right now, I like the fact that everybody's a skeptic because I, I like to, uh, um, you know, I, I think higher. And I like the fact that people are skeptical. Okay. Yeah, so, so you haven't given me a clear answer on uh, how much higher than 100 and when, but you're saying... 110, when... 110 to 120, somewhere between now and uh, January. Okay. Okay, we shall revisit that, um, inshallah. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, thank you very much, all three of my guests today. I think we had a fantastic discussion. Uh, Omar Najia, Vibhuti Garg, and Omar Al-Ubedli. Thank you very much. Have a great day ahead, and bye-bye for now.